to the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. Tonight, we're starting a new series, and uh, sometimes when we do this, thank you, Jesse, appreciate that. Um, sometimes when we do this, we, uh, we don't always have video bumpers and all that, and I'm okay with that. But we're starting a little series for the next few weeks called Improbable Icons. Uh, many of you know this, but uh, on Sunday mornings, uh, while Pastor Brady has been out, which by the way, he's just to give you a report, he's doing really well, uh, went up to the hospital on Tuesday to see him. Surgery, he had open heart surgery, replaced uh, a valve or something like that. I'm not a doctor, so I don't really know, but it was pretty serious. But the surgery was all very successful. We, it, it happened uh, two Fridays ago. Uh, went up and saw him on Tuesday, and uh, he was doing well at the time. He, he was uh, under a bit of medication, and so I got him to approve a raise for me and all this. It was just really great. Uh, Sunday night budget just really increased. And, no, uh, he, He's doing really well, and uh, actually he just went home this past Friday, so he's resting at home. And, you can imagine the recovery from that. But, so he's going to be out of the pulpit on Sunday mornings for several weeks. And so we've had the privilege of hearing a different men share their story and talk about their journey and what God has done in their life. And so I've taken this as an opportunity to craft a few different uh, mini-series type things that we've been wanting to talk about. Well, we just wrapped up the As We Gather series, and I encourage you to either get uh, the CDs uh, or if you want it free and you're comfortable with the digital thing, you can get the podcast from New Life Sunday Night. And, uh, and listen to that, kind of explaining uh, why we do some of the things we do, why the creed, why communion, why confession, why all of that. Um, but tonight we're, we're going to start probably, it could be a three-week thing, it might be four weeks depending on when we pick up uh, back into the Luke series, which is our big series for the year. Um, I, I thought it'd be fun to kind of dig into a few whole books of the Bible, some of the shorter ones uh, that are named after people uh, that, that uh, in some ways, if we look at it, would, would say, how did they get a book of the Bible named after them? And so, hence the title, Improbable Icons. If you um, go to the grocery store, which I imagine all of you do, um, except for maybe some of you single folks, I'm not sure. There is a thing where they sell real food. Um, but, but, just kidding. But you go to the grocery store, and you're, you're paying for stuff, and you, you're walking, you know, you're in the aisle, you know, about to pay for stuff. And you can't help but notice there's a magazine rack. And inevitably, these magazines are talking about different celebrities and what so-and-so is doing. In fact, uh, last week or the week before, I think, when I was home on vacation, I was watching local news, which I almost never have the TV on at the same time of day as local news. And local news had ended, and, um, and this, I don't know if it was like uh, Entertainment Tonight or one of those shows, you know, came on and was talking about such and such a celebrity. And it was just so bizarre and yet I kept finding myself, you know, I'm like doing the dishes or whatever, doing something productive with my time. And, uh, and, but I kept, I kept wandering over to the screen and being like, what are they saying about who, what, you know? And then finally I just turned it off and I thought, what is this? And, uh, and we, we have a culture or a society that, that uh, for some reason we like celebrities. We want to lift them up and then maybe see them fail. We, we kind of had this phenomenon with the NBA finals where LeBron James, you know, so hyped and all this stuff, and yet everybody was rooting against him to fail, and maybe with good reason, and I'm, I'm fine with the Mavericks winning and all that. But there is this kind of desire. Even now, if you're a golf guy, uh, you know, Tiger's not playing in the U.S. Open, you know, bummer, he hasn't missed an Open since, you know, 
14 years ago, whatever it was. But now we've got this 22-year-old kid, which, by the way, did he win? Anyone know? McElroy? I'm sure he did. Okay, so, so we've got this kid, and now everyone can't help but say, you know, he's 22. Tiger was 22 when he first won. And did you know that this is the greatest number of strokes or whatever, you know, all the records that Rory McElroy shattered? And you're wondering how I pick up this stuff. I, I, I don't know. Um, but I, I, do, I do keep up with these things here and there. But there's this desire, and people have been, been, been chattering about how golf needs a new dominant player, or in other words, we need sort of this celebrity, we need someone to make the sport interesting. Uh, golf needs a lot more than that, but um, <laughs> if you ask me, <laughs> but, but, um, <laughs> but there's something in us that desires to, to, to have a person that we can kind of uh, admire and maybe look up to and be enamored with and find out the details of their life and all of this sort of thing. The church actually recognizes this need in us and uh, historically has not condemned it. It's one of the reasons the church began naming saints. Uh, and they named saints, uh, one of the reasons they began naming men and women uh, as saints was to say, look, there are others who have gone before. There are others who know uh, what you're going through, and there are others who have lived in a remarkable way with the strength of God's grace by the power of His Spirit, you know, of course. But there are others that have done this, and look, you can, you can admire them. Now, we know that sometimes the way the church has expressed that has not always been the most remarkable thing uh, or the most, uh, you know, sometimes it's convoluted, but there is still something admirable uh, about that. Um, about a year ago, I was having coffee with a friend of mine who... Uh, is an evangelical who recently converted to Catholicism. And part of the reason uh, he did that was he just was drawn to the rootedness of it. And he said to me, he said, you know, there's just something about royalty, about knowing that there's people who are leading the church that have studied, that know what they're... T- and this is his perception. If you disagree, you're, you're entitled to that. It's okay. But for him, what he was saying is he said, I'm just drawn to the sense of the Pope speaks. So this, you know, there's a sense of it's, it's royalty, and it got me kind of thinking, maybe there's a difference between royalty and celebrity. Uh, what we seem to have in the church today is a lot of celebrity. Uh, people who know how to create a platform for themselves and then leverage that platform just so they can have a megaphone to yell at people via Twitter, you know? Uh, but, and and, and we, have, we understand what celebrity sort of is, but it's very difficult to know is there a sense of royalty? And by royalty, I mean, is there anybody who's really trustworthy, who's not just famous for being famous, but someone who actually has some weight to their words, someone who, when they speak, we can listen, we can trust, and certainly we could all name different people. Uh, The Eastern Orthodox Church has a tradition of icons, and part of the whole thing with icons is is recognizing this need that we have uh, to find men and women that picture for us what Jesus, uh, with, what, what Jesus might have looked like, what this life of Christ looked like. In fact, uh, if for some reason you, you find yourself wanting to become an Orthodox priest, you will eventually have to grow your hair out long. That may be bad news for some of you. And, and, uh, and because, yeah, anyway, uh, and, then, and then grow a beard and this whole thing. And, and part of that is to, to say we want even your physical appearance to sort of resemble uh, the, the, the pictures or the drawings of Jesus. And that may sound bizarre, but the idea is we kind of need others to look to. We sort of need others to say, you know, I think that's what it means uh, to be a woman of God or, or a man of God. And so if you go to an Orthodox church, there'll, there'll be these paintings along the sides of the wall in different ways. 
and they'll pick different saints, different churches may do this, but then they'll come to a section of the wall that is left blank, and it's left blank because the implication is that's where you are. That's where you fit. Okay, so here is Chrysostom, and here's, you know, Gregory of Nyssa, and, and then all of a sudden, okay, look, there's this empty spot, and this empty spot is because it's circa 2011. It's your spot. It's live in such a way that you too will be an icon and inspire others. Now, all of this sounds good and fine and kind of warm and fuzzy, but the problem that most of us feel is there's no way I'm that, and there's no way I could measure up with that. In fact, chances are a lot of us come to church or read our Bibles and walk away with this feeling of, yeah, that's nice, but that's sort of unreal for me. That's, that's not who I am. That's not who we are. There's no way. I've already, you don't know what I've already done. You don't know what I've already been through. I've kind of already disqualified myself from being in icon status. And what I want us to see over these next few weeks is actually the people, the men and women that God has worked with, uh, has used, who's made their stories part of his story, have all been people that should not have fit really people who, who maybe do not belong. And so tonight we're going to focus on a book of the Bible that you, you may be familiar with, probably many of you are. It's the book of Nehemiah. And next week we'll do Ruth, and then the week after that we may do uh, Jonah. And, and, and part of the reason for this is to, is to take whole books of the Bible and not to say, okay, look, this is going to be an in-depth study of the whole book, and we're going to go break it down. No, but in one night, sort of a bird's-eye view, we're going to look at this character Look at this person, Nehemiah, and, and look at some aspect of his life and see, wait a minute, this is what he is an icon of for us. And look how unremarkable or ordinary or whatever the case may be with their life and to see what the Lord did with them. Nehemiah is a fascinating uh, person to me because he was not a prophet. As far as we know, there was no prophetic utterance. He, he never did any miracles. Didn't call down fire from heaven. He didn't get to be like one of the cool kids in the Old Testament, you know. Uh, no, no dramatic things. Didn't wave over a sea and see it part, you know. Uh, also, he, we, from what we know, he never actually fought any battles. Um, he was ready to. He had a sword and all this stuff. But not a great warrior, so not a prophet, not a miracle worker, uh, not, not, a, not a warrior. Um, in fact, his claim to fame, is, as you may be familiar with, is that he rebuilt a wall. And so it kind of sounds like, Geesh, how'd this guy get in the Bible, let alone have a book named after him? I flew in last night uh, after spending the day uh, in Virginia Beach, Virginia. I had the privilege of uh, giving a couple of lectures at a one-day seminar at Regent University about worship songwriting. And, and uh, I'd never been to Regent, and it's a remarkable place. And it reminded me very much of, of, of my experience at uh, Oral Roberts University. And for the good and bad and all the stuff that may be mixed in with, with both of those places... Uh, still, what you can't help but, but notice is that one person had this vision and sense of call from God, and they acted in faith and in obedience, and look what happened as a result. And uh, I was reminded by that. Now, what's unfortunate is with Oral Roberts University, it looks like something from the Jetsons, and with um, Regent, it looks like this old colonial commonwealth, and it's red bricks. It's really, really nice. And I thought, come on, Oral, why couldn't you have... Anyway, um, <laughs> but... Um, but I was talking to one of the ladies who, who works for the Divinity School, and she said, you know, she was new on staff, and she said, I, I'm so struck by looking at this place and to think that God used one man to build this thing, and one guy that had a dream and, 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 and believed God and obeyed God, and look what happened. And, and she was very inspired by that. And I said, it, it is inspiring, isn't it? And then she went on to say, it just makes me think 
of what any of us could do if we just obeyed God. And I, 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 I was a little more quiet, and I said, that, that's certainly true, and kind of left it at that. But it reminded me of how so often, uh, so many chapel services I, I spent at ORU, where we had well-meaning uh, speakers encourage us uh, to go and do likewise, and well-meaning speakers tell us that we too could uh, build universities and do, and do this and do all these sorts of things. And I, I think that is a valuable lesson to young people to say, look, uh, the Lord can do something extraordinary with your life. The trouble is, sometimes we need to redefine what extraordinary is. And sometimes we need to redefine what greatness is. Uh, Because what if greatness doesn't look like launching a university? What if greatness doesn't look like uh, launching a crusade ministry? What if greatness doesn't look like a megachurch? What if greatness doesn't look like that? Then what? Was it because you didn't have enough faith? Were you too scared? Did you dream too small? You know, sometimes people will say, oh, you need to dream dreams that are worthy of God. Well, I think that's true, but that doesn't mean that only big dreams are worthy of God, right? And I think something happens in a young person when you, when you stand in an environment like that year after year and you, you, you have a head that, that's filled with these wonderful dreams and wonderful exhortations uh, and then you, you enter the real world and you get a job and you get married and then you find yourself, instead of changing the world, changing diapers, you know. And you think, gosh, did I sell out? And then you think, well, maybe I did sell out. Maybe, you know, maybe it's just family sort of in my way, and there are a lot of guys, who, women as well, but I feel like men maybe are more prone to this temptation of, of believing that, that in order to be significant, we've got to do something greater out there. And so, so how many people have, in the name of Jesus, neglected their kids? How many people in the name of the kingdom have forsaken their families? How many in the name of doing a great work have missed the work that God called them to? I wonder that. And I think Nehemiah stands to us as a rebuke against our culture's obsession with the fantastic and the dramatic and the spectacular. I think Nehemiah stands as a rebuke to our own uh, um, tendency to be fixated on the fantastic. God, it's got to be miraculous. God, it's got to be dramatic. God, it's got to be superlative, superlative, superlative. And what if it's just brick after brick after brick? With that in mind, I want us to to begin uh, kind of looking at at the book of Nehemiah, and we'll kind of take uh, three or four verses from a few chapters here and and highlight a few different things. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Okay, a little backdrop here. I think I mentioned this in in a sermon a few weeks ago, but just uh, for the sake of clarity, uh, Israel's great king was David. Uh, David followed Saul. There's Saul, David, but sort of the golden age of Israel is David and then then Solomon afterwards where he builds the temple and all this stuff. But Solomon has all this uh, 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 adulterous relationships that eventually leads to idolatry, and that's the sin that God really cannot stand, is this covenant unfaithfulness, this idolatry. And so God says to Solomon, essentially, out of my commitment to your dad, David, I'm not going to rip the kingdom from you, but your son will see it ripped from him. And so that's exactly what happens. It splits in two. There's Rehoboam that keeps 
uh, the southern portion with two tribes. It retains the name or, or, or takes the name Judah. And then the northern kingdom is led by Jeroboam, which has these ten tribes. Well, eventually, you'll, you'll see the rest of the Old Testament is the story of the good and bad kings of Israel and Judah and the prophets speaking to them. And, and uh, for Israel, they mostly had wicked kings, and they're all compared to Jeroboam. And Judah, they, they have a couple of good ones here and there. Uh, but but uh, really, they, they both get uh, dis- disciplined by the Lord. Israel gets taken by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. They get scattered, and that's where you have the ten lost tribes of Israel. Judah gets taken by Babylon in three separate uh, captivities. Uh, this is told in the book of Jeremiah, and you get this is somewhere between 586, 584 B.C. There's three separate campaigns that come and take them, and instead of scattering them, they take them as prisoners. Well, they take them as prisoners, and then eventually over time... Babylon itself is overrun by the Persians. It's like uh, Trading Spaces Empire Edition. You know, everybody gets a shot at ruling the world. And uh, so the Persians now are ruling, and Nehemiah has grown up in this Persian Empire uh, as a Jewish kid who's never been to Jerusalem, okay? And so he's got some friends and brothers that have come back, and he wants to know. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, And its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. And for some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. The first thing to kind of say about Nehemiah as we look at his life is that Nehemiah had a burden that was larger than himself. There is something about what we're saying, what was told to me, even in those chapel services about dreaming big and having a burden. There is something about that. I don't want to throw that out and say, oh, it's all just hogwash. No, that's not. There is something about God giving us a burden. And maybe many of you would say, you know, I, I know what it's like to, to be broken, to, to weep, to have this heart for what I see uh, in the world or an opportunity or a need. I think of you know, Doug Shaw in the back there, not to embarrass you, Doug, but Doug works with the International Students ISI and a tremendous ministry that they're reaching students who spend a significant amount of their time and life here in the U.S. from these other countries, the burden, the opportunity to reach, to bring the gospel. There's all kinds of burdens that the Lord puts on our heart. And at this point, we can identify with Nehemiah because we say, yeah, I have that. I know what it's like to be so moved by something that sometimes I feel like I can't even eat. I just, I I weep. I'm I'm burdened by this. I pray about this. Uh, There was a fascinating op-ed article by David Brooks in the New York Times around graduation time a couple weeks ago. Uh, that said, we're telling our graduates the wrong thing. And he said, the standard message from boomers to graduates is, uh, take some time, find yourself, don't rush into the workforce, discover who you are, uh, and, then don't, and don't sell out, basically, is, is the message. And he says, we're, we're telling, that's, that's all wrong. That's us imposing our values on them, that the people who really end up making a, a difference, making a dent somewhere, are people who don't wait to find themselves, but they find a cause or find a burden or find a thing and then give their life to it. And he closes this well-written op-ed piece by saying, instead of telling our graduates to find themselves, we should be telling them to go lose themselves. And I thought, huh. I think Jesus said something similar to that, didn't he? Uh, Thanks, David Brooks, but I've heard this before. And there's something to this about letting the Spirit of God open our eyes and saying, Jesus, 
It's not about me finding the, the, you know, the, the exact sort of thing that fits me and that why, all of that. There's, there's a place for that. But maybe the first thing we should be saying is, God, give me a heart that you, give me your heart. Show me where the burden is, and I trust that you'll give me a burden that, that matches the way you've made me and my gifts and all this. If you're a young person trying to figure out, okay, where, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? I would say pay attention to the burdens that are in your heart. Pay attention to the things that move you, that keep you up at night. Pay attention to the things that you can't help but be drawn to, that, you're, that, that maybe God wants to use that. That having a burden larger than yourself is where it starts. Uh, that it, it simply is not this thing, well, I'm just going to sit here, and if God wants to use me, I guess he'll have to knock on my door. Or, you know, if, if, God, if God wants to show me, I think a lot of times as young people, uh, we end up being very passive. We end up saying, well, I'm just going to sit and I'm just going to trust the Lord to direct me, but in the meantime, I'm going to do this. I'll say, in the meantime, do something that awakens a burden. In the meantime, follow something that's in your heart. And we'll, we'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. To pick up the story, we'll, we'll jump over to chapter 2, verse 1. And Nehemiah, remarkably, even after this burden, uh, he doesn't make knee-jerk decisions. He, he stays at his current job. And, uh, and he keeps serving the king, but one day something happens. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th uh, year of the king, Artaxerxes, so a few months have passed, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king, and I had not been sad in his presence before. Stop for a moment. Nehemiah's job is cupbearer. And many of you will be familiar with this, but cupbearer in the ancient world was a significant job. You, you had to, it wasn't just tasting the king's wine uh, before he drank it to make sure that it was the right Merlot or the right Cabernet or whatever, you know. Uh, but it was tasting the wine to make sure it wasn't poisoned. Uh, I told you about how this was this volatile empires, trading empire, conquering empires. And so likely Nehemiah got his job because someone else had vacated the position, if you know what I mean. You know, so this is the kind of thing where you have a bad day at work, you're dead. And yet he says, I had never before appeared sad in the king's presence. Never before. How is it that a man with a burden somewhere else is able to work faithfully here? How is it that someone who has a boss that I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest was wicked? And yet he could say, I've never been sad in his presence before. What I want to notice, what I want us to notice about this is that Nehemiah learned to do small things well in the here and now. Sometimes when we get a burden or we get a dream or we get a vision, it makes us check out from where we are at the moment. And it makes us say, well, I don't really care. I got this stupid job. I hate this thing. I hate what I'm doing. I don't like this. I just can't wait till I go do this. I, can't just, I just can't wait till I go and do that. And that's really what I want to do. And, and, I just, and here's Nehemiah with this Incredible burden in a job, so to speak, that's terribly precarious, working for a king that, for all we know, was not a good, benevolent, loving boss who had coffee to catch up on your heart once a week at Panera. <laughs> that's for you, Dave. <laughs> for all we know, this is not a, an ideal employment situation. How many of us could say, you know, that's tough to do? I th I'll say that. That's not because of my boss or my job or anything like that. It's just sometimes it's hard to say, yeah, I want to do small things well 
in the here and now. Because sometimes you, we get a, a, a picture or a dream and it makes us put life on hold, almost TiVo life. You say, okay, hang on, I'm, I'm not really going to live, I'm just going to kind of coast until I go and do this. I can't tell you, you know, my conversations with different young people who, um, just pick an example, who want to be worship leaders and come, come through the school of worship. So what are you going to do next year? Well, I don't know, but I think I'm going to, you know, save up some money and eventually I'm going to go, you know, go to another school of worship at Hillsong. I'm like, no, oh, okay. And I try not to say that ours is better, but whatever, you know, like, just kidding. And uh, I said, well, do you think you could maybe lead worship a little bit in the meantime? I said, well, no, I don't know. I, I, someday I'm going to, you know, I mean, I have dreams to, and people may say, I got dreams. I'm going to be a recording artist. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do, and I got all this stuff that I'm going to do. And yet you won't do any of it here and now. I had students that I went to school with who were, I was a theological historical studies major uh, at ORU, and I had friends in my theology classes who could argue with the best of them, and yet when it came time to be at church on Sunday, nobody went anywhere. So are you serving at a church in town? No, no, I don't really like any of the churches here. Like, I just think it's, you know, when I start my church, it's going to be da 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 Okay? wonder how that will work out. Nehemiah's got this incredible burden, and yet he learns to do small things well in the here and now, so much so that he says, I'd never before been sad. And so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad, but you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart, perceptive king. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what? Is it you want? Remarkable. What? Could it be, and we don't know this, but could it be that because Nehemiah had been the kind of cupbearer that always served well, that always did small things well, that when the time came to ask for something, the king said, you got it. And Nehemiah doesn't make any small request. The king says what he wants, and he goes for the moon, you know. He says, okay, well, uh, actually, I'd like safe passage Back to Jerusalem, okay. I'd like the king's timber to rebuild the walls, okay. I I would also like enough timber to build myself a house. All right. All of it, you got it. What does our faithfulness in the here and now open up for us in the future? We don't know. But we could be learning something in the here and now. Jump ahead to the story and... um, you find that um, in, in, he, he goes to Jerusalem, he rides in in the middle of the night, rides into the city, I think on a donkey. Uh, he rides into the city, it's dark, and he looks at the rubble and the ruins, he kind of surveys it, and the next morning he meets with some of the people who are there, he announces his plan. And then he, he creates this plan, and, and he, he assigns families to take a section of the wall. Boy, we could talk about that for a little while, too. He signs families and says, look, the household of so-and-so, you take this section, you, 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 you take this area, you build it up, you make it strong. And they do that for, for something like two and a half months or something like that. They, they, they work at this thing and they keep at it and they, and they build this thing. And we get to this place here in Nehemiah 6, verse 1. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I'd rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it. Though up to that time I had not set in the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message, Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. Now that should have been a red flag. 
Sanballat and Geshem in this narrative are, are kind of the villains. But they were scheming to harm me, and so I sent messengers to them with this reply, I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same reply. Two things from this passage. One is this, that Nehemiah stayed the course over the long haul. I know it doesn't seem like that long. It's like, well, it's like a summer's worth of a project, you know. That's true. But a summer's worth of a family owning a section and waking up every day and saying, hey, let's go put another brick on top of that one we put yesterday and put another brick on top. I mean, this is like, gee, not glamorous stuff, but stays the course. I wonder how many times we quit on something. I wonder wonder how many times I've quit on something because it got too weary or too monotonous. I wonder if you think about the men and women that you admire, if any one of them accomplished what they did for the Lord overnight. Some of my heroes have changed. My hero, one of my heroes now is Eugene Peterson, who is now late in life and yet at the height of his influence. How is that possible? Here's a guy who spent 29 years pastoring a church, refused, had a plan that when it got above a certain size, he was going to plant another one. He was not going to, he wanted to know his people by name. Here's a guy who chose obscurity for the bulk of his life, and now in the latter part of his life, he's getting, he's finally saying yes to just one or two invitations here and there. He really doesn't, you know. I think I I need heroes that understand that the way Jesus works is that he saves the best for last. Instead of heroes that tell me that you can plant a church at 23 and become the next big thing and on the cover of such and such. I don't need heroes like that. And I would urge you to reject heroes like that. I would urge you to embrace heroes that stay the course. Embrace people that say that there's no place that's God-forsaken as long as you're there. Because if you're there, guess who's also there? God. I think in many ways, all of us here at at New Life can say that. A lot of us can say we've weathered some stuff, we've been through some challenges, we've, my goodness, you know. And to say, wait, what if, what if, I had all the thoughts after the scandal of 06, I had all the thoughts after the shooting in 07, I had all the thoughts of, Oh, gee, where's this? What do we do? Should I make plans? I mean, maybe we'll just move to Iowa and live off the farm, you know, if all else fails. Move in with Holly's parents, you know. I'll, I'll learn to work the fields. I don't know. It's not a very good plan, but it was a plan. And yet there was this question, what if? What if we stay? What if we don't go anywhere? What if we stay and see what God will do? Now, I'm not telling you, this is not carte blanche stay in, in in situations that are abusive or damaging. I, I, this, is, this is not carte blanche stuff. I'm just saying there may be situations where we give up too easily on a project, on a mission, on a call, because we need something to fill the newsletter, doggone it. And if there's not enough testimonies coming in, then maybe we should just close down this mission base and go somewhere. No. What if you stay for 20 years, keep sowing seeds and plowing up tough ground? Think about the work, Scott, you're doing in parts of the country, parts of the world we can't mention, you know, for your own 
protection. Think about the, some of the stuff. You're, you're probably not, when you go on these trips, you probably don't get a chance to just see, like, you know, write home about thousands of salvations. But you go and you keep doing it because we believe something. And this leads me to this last observation about Nehemiah's life, is that Nehemiah believed he was doing a great work. They come to him and they say, come down, come meet with us. And he says, I'm carrying on a great project. Another translation says, I'm doing a great work. I can't come down and meet you. I've always found this puzzling because if I was standing next to Nehemiah, I might have said, psst, I wouldn't exactly call it a great work. Kind of having illusions of grandeur here, you know. I mean, it's like hammer, you know, I mean, not exactly Moses, you know. I'm sure you could spare an hour to go meet with the guys. I cannot stop the work because I'm doing a great work. The truth is, Nehemiah might have wrestled with this at different points in his life. Frequently, his prayer to God is, remember me. Remember me, God. Remember me. And you have to wonder if in the back of his mind, he, he... was thinking, yeah, I'm not Elijah, I'm not David, I'm not Moses, I'm not, I'm building a wall, I don't know how I'll go down compared to the greats, but God, remember me. A couple weeks ago, uh, driving back down, we we went up to uh, Grand Lake for a little getaway while my parents were in town, and, and, uh, on the drive up and on the drive down, we listened to um, uh, Focus's radio theater version of Anna Green Gables. And uh, it's a great version. of It's been a decade and a half at least since I saw it. And the only reason I saw the movie for the first time was my mom and sister and cousins hijacked me. But uh, the truth is I really loved the movie when I watched it. And it's been, you know, again, at least a decade and a half since um, I've been around the story. And so... We're listening to this uh, theatrical, dr- dramatized version of the story, and it's beautiful. And, and uh, on the way down, it gets to the part where, if you know the story, you know where Marilla is getting really sick, and Matthew uh, has already passed, and, and Marilla is getting kind of sick, and Anne has done her teacher's college stuff, but, but she has this opportunity to get a scholarship, or she has a scholarship to go on and, and uh, continue her studies. But she chooses, she says, to stay back and be with, Marilla, and uh, Marilla's like, no, you, you can't do this. You, you, you've got to, you know, you got to keep going. And what about your ambitions, Anne? And uh, she says, oh, I'm every bit as ambitious. It's just that the object of my ambition has changed. And I, I don't know if it was sleep deprivation or what, but I was just bawling, you know. And I look around, and Holly's crying. I look back, my pay, all of us in the van are like, whoo. You know, Sophia's crying, Nora's like, you know, sort of, you know. And um, I think that's it. I think the word for us from Nehemiah is not that God doesn't want us to do a great work, but that how we define great work must change. We've got to see our family as a great work. We've got to see our friendships as a great work. We've got to see the thing that's right in front of us to do as a great work. This is Father's Day, and, and, and 
month ago when it was Mother's Day, I meant to work in something about moms into the service, and I failed to do it, my wife pointed out. Um, but tonight, I'll take the opportunity to address both parents, both mothers and fathers. Uh, what if, and this is a challenge to me as much as it is to any of the rest, so what if we didn't live around our children, uh, but what if we really viewed them as our great work? What if instead of living around them, yeah, 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 I'll get to you, let me just finish this, and I'm so guilty of that. What if we could say, you know what, there'll be plenty of time for another email, but you are my great work. You are my greatest work. You are the, the thing that I'm giving my life to. At some point, as followers of Jesus, we have to learn what it means to live for the sake of another. That's what Jesus did. And at some point, if the irony of ironies that is if in Jesus' name we do only things that add to our resume, add to our quote-unquote legacies, to heck with our legacies. Our legacies are the way we love, and the way we give, and the way we serve. What if when the sand ballots and geshems and all the distractions come and say, I need to meet with you, come down, come down, I need to touch you. Yeah that we can say, you know what, I'm not coming down because I believe what I'm doing is a great work. Because I believe that what God has put in front of me is a great work. John Lennon famously wrote in his song, Beautiful Boy, life is what happens while you're busy making other plans. Nehemiah found out that greatness is what happens and you give yourself to the great work that's right there in front of you. It doesn't look like it. It doesn't feel like it. About 400 years after Nehemiah rode into Jerusalem, another man rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. This time it was the brightness of day, and the walls were high, and the gates were strong, and the people were there in mass. And they were crying out, Hosanna! Hosanna. One of the gospel writers in telling the story of the triumphal entry says that Jesus stopped as he was riding in and looked around. And in my imagination, I wonder if he looks up and says, Nehemiah, you were right. You were doing a great work. You couldn't have seen it. You couldn't have known it. But you were doing a great work. Because if you had not built the walls around Jerusalem, more exiles would not have returned back. If they had not returned back, they would not have resettled. If they hadn't resettled, from whose household and lineage would the Messiah have come? Into what city would he have been riding into? See, Nehemiah had no way of knowing that his little story of faithfulness would end up being part of God's massive story of saving and redeeming the world. And yet, he was part of it. Friends, the ordinariness of our lives, when submitted and surrendered to God, will somehow find itself being woven into God's grand story. The story of what Jesus is doing with his creation. Amen? Nehemiah is an icon of faithfulness. If you were to write down, I'm thinking of a word for each of these books as we go through it. 
for him, it's Nehemiah, is an icon of faithfulness, doing small things well in the here and now over a long period of time. In the church calendar, we are in the months now that are called, that's called ordinary time. I love that. I just love that in the church calendar, you know, we got Advent, we got Epiphany, we got, you know, uh, uh, oh, sorry, Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, and then, goodness help me here, eventually, you know, we get uh, uh, Lent, and then, and then Easter, and then Pentecost, you know, it's just such grand and glorious things, and all of a sudden you get to the summer, and it's like, yeet, ordinary time. What? Ordinary time? Maybe we should make up something. Spectacular time, miracle time, <laughs> harvest time. Ordinary time? That's the best the church could do? Yes. Because God is in the ordinary time. And that's the word for us. Here we are, going through the summer. It's not yet Advent. It's not yet. It's ordinary time. And yet, it's a reminder that this is where God works. Let's pray. Maybe you're here tonight needing to say, God, give me a burden larger than myself. I've been selfish. I've been just all I've been consumed with is me and my. And, my and, and make that your prayer tonight. Or maybe you're here and you're thinking, God, this surely my life can't mean much. Surely what I'm doing in my work, it's not missions, it's not this, it's not, surely it can't mean that much. And I want to say to you tonight that when we surrender the ordinary time to Christ, that he weaves it into his story somehow and that our faithfulness with the small becomes extraordinary in his hands. And maybe some of you need the encouragement tonight to stay, stay the course, stay in this, stick with it. God's not done yet. Like Jesus at the wedding of Cana, he saves his best work for last. Maybe if we would just stick at it, stick in it a bit more. Father, make us like your son, Jesus. Thank you that we have a, a person like Nehemiah to even give us a shadowy picture of your son, a picture of faithfulness. Thank you that he stands as a reminder to us that we can find our stories caught up in yours when we learn faithfulness. Teach us by your spirit how to be faithful, how to do small things well right here, right now, over the long haul. For the glory of your name. Amen. Amen.